Good to see the number out this evening. Especially thankful for those that are visiting with us tonight. We want to let you know that you are our honored guests, and we would love to have you anytime that you're able to be out with us. We had started a lesson this morning that I had explained would be in two parts, and so I want to especially thank those that were here this morning and are here again tonight to hear part two of our lesson. We'll excuse Dave, I suppose, since he had a, a valid excuse. But he asked me for the Cliff Notes version of this morning's lesson since he couldn't be here. So I guess we'll somewhat give him that as we remind ourselves of the main passage from which we've drawn this lesson on the greatest commandments. And as I explained, we find this in other places besides just Mark's account of the gospel, but uh, we're going to use what Mark writes here in chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, to uh, set the stage for our thoughts. And so we'll again read this passage and make some comment about a few of the things we talked about this morning, and then we'll get into uh, the second part of our lesson. So in verse 28, it says, One of the scribes came, and having heard uh, them reasoning together, perceiving that he, that is Christ, had answered them well, decided to ask him his own question. And so he asked, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This, he says, is the first commandment. And that's what we spent most of our time talking about this morning, as you recall, if you were here. Talking about what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. We talked about the importance of that love for God. We talked about why we should love God. We considered all that God has done for us, namely in what he has done through giving his son on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. But in verse 31, he mentions not just this commandment, which he identifies as the first, but he also identifies a second, which he says is like it. It is closely related, in other words. And he says that second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so the scribe says to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And so as we looked at, again, that first commandment this morning, we're going to spend our time this evening thinking about that second most important command 
being closely associated and related to the first. And that is, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as I thought about appropriate places to begin on that note, I thought about what we read in Luke chapter 10. If you turn there with me, we're going to start in verse 25 and read down through verse 37. And we have here the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so verse 25 says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus responds. He asks a question. What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so this man answers. And he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So these very same things that we've been looking at. And Jesus says to him, You have said rightly, or answered rightly, Do this and you will live. But the man, wanting to further justify himself, he said to Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? I understand that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, but well, how do we know who our neighbor is? In other words, is what he's asking. And so Jesus is going to now teach this parable to show him who his neighbor is. And likewise, of course, show us who our neighbor is. So in verse 30, he says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw this man, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, he came and looked, and he also passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where this man was, was lying there, half dead, and he sees him and he has compassion. And he goes to him and bandages his wounds. He pours oil and wine on them. And then he sets him up on his own animal. And it says he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of this man and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. And so now Jesus is going to ask a question of the one who'd ask, who is my neighbor? He says, which of the three do you think was neighbor to the one who fell among thieves? So the man replies, the one that showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Loving our neighbor as ourself is easy to say. It's easy to talk about in a lot of ways. Uh, but to put it into practice sometimes can be very difficult for us. Because it's easy to love people who love us. It's easy to love people who are kind and have 
no ill will towards us. They're not trying to hurt us or do anything against us. We can even be nice to strangers as long as they're nice in return, right? But what about people who despise us? People who go out of their way to try and hurt us in some way? If we were going along the road and we saw one of those people cast there on the side, we could tell by looking that something terrible had happened to them. Would we have compassion? Or would we, like the priest and the Levite, say, well, I know who that is. I'm just going to leave him there. He, he got what's coming to him. Maybe that's what goes through our mind. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John says, if someone says, I love God, and also hates his brother, John says he is a liar. In other words, we don't love God if we hate our brother. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Jesus talked about the idea of loving those even who do not love us in return in Matthew 5. Verse 43 there, he says, You've heard that it was said that you should love your neighbor, but you should hate your enemy. And so in other words, some had proposed that, well, to love your neighbor means love people that are, you know, your countrymen, your family. But if you've got people out here that are seeking your harm, well, then you're to, to hate those people. You're to return evil for evil, in other words. But Jesus is trying to help us understand the kind of love that God has, first of all, for us. And he wants us to reciprocate to the world around us. And so he says, love your enemies. And bless those who curse you. And do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. The ones that persecute you. And the result is going to be something that we all desire. We all want to be children of God, don't we? He says if we would be sons of our Father in heaven, then this is the kind of attitude we must have. He reminds us that he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We know that God is not desirous of anyone being lost eternally. He wants all to be saved. Have you ever prayed for your enemy? There's a peace about that process that's kind of hard to describe. When you humble yourself enough to sincerely go to God and, and pray for somebody who maybe you just really don't like all that much because the way they treat you. It's freeing is the best way I can describe it. The best way we can rise above 
the hatred and the division that we see around about us in this world is to love like Jesus loved and to return good to those who do evil against us. In 1 John 4, again, verse 7, John there wrote, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Sometimes, though, we, we fall short of that, that mark that Jesus has set for us to achieve. And sometimes we, we bushel our lights. Well, what does that mean? Well, I, I, well you going to answer my question? There you go. You put a basket over your light. It's kind of like the song that we sing as children. Sometimes we sing it as adults, right? We have this little light of mine, and we're going to let it shine, we, we sing. And then one of those verses is, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. But sometimes with certain people, we say, well, I'm not going to let it shine to you. You're a big meanie face. You, know, you, you treated me bad back there the other day, or whenever it was. You called me that name, or you took that thing that was mine, or you did whatever it was that was hurtful. So, no light for you. I'm just going to hide it over here. Save it for everybody else that's nice to me. You know, that's not a, a new problem. That's a problem that's been around since the very beginning. In Matthew 5, Jesus, of course, tells us that we are to be lights. You know, sometimes we wonder, well, where'd that song idea come from? Well, it came from passages like the one here in Matthew 5. Jesus tells us that we're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill, he says, cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. The King James uses the word bushel, that's where that comes from, it means the same thing. But he says people light a, a light and then they, they put it up on a, a stand. That's the point, so that it will give light to all that are in the house. And so likewise, he says, let your light shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But sometimes we're like Jonah. I'm sure most of us remember the story of Jonah. You can find that little tiny book back there in the Old Testament. Hopefully I can find a tiny little book in the Old Testament. There it is. Book of Jonah is not a terribly long book, but yet it's one of those stories that most of us have heard since the time we were young. And we know, of course, how the story begins. God tells Jonah, look, I want you to go uh, to the city of Nineveh. And I want you to preach to them and warn them because they've sinned against me. And so I want you to tell them that unless they repent of their sins, they're going to be destroyed. Well, the problem was that the city of Nineveh in Assyria 
those people were the enemies of the Jews. And you know, of course, ultimately that uh, Assyria took at least a portion of Israel into captivity, and Babylon did the same for what was left later on. But Jonah is thinking, well, why on earth would I want to go and preach to my enemies after all the terrible things they've done? Why would I want to go warn them about their sins? Because, well, what if they listen? Well, that means they're going to be saved because I know God's merciful. We see that here in chapter 4. You know, of course, initially he refuses to listen. So through a series of events, he's ultimately cast into the sea and this great fish swallows him up and he's there in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. He's praying to God. He realizes, of course, yeah, I made a mistake here, as we probably all would realize at that point. And God, in his mercy upon Jonah, causes the fish to vomit him back up onto the land. And at that point, he decides, maybe I should go do what God told me to do. And so we see there in chapter 3 that he goes and he preaches. And the people listen to this warning that Jonah gives them. And the king of the city declares that the entire population should cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes, that they should repent of their sins and turn to the living God so that they would not perish. You would think that would be something that would make Jonah happy. I mean, we think about people that are lost in their sins, and, and that's what we're all about, right? That's what we, we should be living for, is to try and reach those that are lost and, and help them to come to Jesus for salvation. And we were overjoyed when someone is receptive to the gospel. But not Jonah. Even after all that he'd been through. And I'd like us to, to read through just 11 verses here of chapter 4. And notice chapter 4 begins, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And though he prays to God, verse 2, he says, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? You know, this is why I fled previously. For I know that you're a gracious and merciful God. I know that you're slow to anger. I know that you're abundant in loving kindness and one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please just take my life from me. How silly. You know, we, we read these words that Jonah prayed, and we think, what a silly thing to say. How silly to be angry when such good has been accomplished. But yet, he's so upset that his enemies have received God's mercy that he's just, I don't want to live anymore. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. And so the Lord says, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east side, and he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade until he might see what would become of the city. And we read that God prepared this plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So even, even though 
Jonah's this disgruntled little man on the side of the hill. Uh, God is still showing favor to him and, and trying to comfort him with this plant that grows up to give him some shade from the heat. And Jonah, we, we read, was grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared this worm. And the worm started to eat the plant, and it caused the plant to wither. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared this vehement east wind, and the sun once again began to beat on Jonah's head, and, and he grew faint. And again, he's, he's wishing death for himself, and says, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? about the plant. And Jonah, Jonah, of course, responds. Sometimes you wonder, does God have a sense of humor? Well, I think we see that he does when we read things like this. But Jonah says, it is right for me to be angry. You know, he's, he's really upset about this plant. But now the Lord's going to teach him a lesson through what has just happened. So God says, you had pity on this plant for which you did not labor to make it grow. It came up in a night and then perished in a night. He says, should I not pity this city, this great city, Nineveh, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? Yeah, I know that these people are your enemies. They've done terrible things to your people, but they're still human beings created in my image. And they're clearly lost and in need of direction. God says, should I not pity them and offer them the opportunity to be saved? And should not you likewise be seeking for their best interest? Powerful lesson in the little book of Jonah for us all. Notice what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now hold on, John. <laughs> that seems like a, a pretty large jump in logic that you've made here. I mean, I, I don't like a lot of people, but it doesn't mean that I'd go kill them, right? That's what we, we might think as we read that. John, of course, goes on and talks about how we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And he continues, he says, By this we know love, because he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us, and we also should lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and, and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide? in such a person. When John talks about the idea of hatred being an equivalent to murder, he's not talking about uh, if we hate someone that we necessarily want to see him dead. But he's talking about a greater concept than just our physical life and death. He's talking about spiritual things. Just like Jonah, 
because he hated those people, because of what they in his mind represented, they represented all the terrible things that had befallen his people. And so he had determined, I'm not going to share anything good with them, especially not that which could save their souls. And so the idea here of being a murderer is not that we're going around stabbing people with knives, but it's that we're withholding that which can give them eternal life. If we hate people, we're not going to share the gospel with them, are we? If you're honest. Because if if we hate them, we're not even going to be talking to them at all, are we? We're going to remove ourselves completely from ever having any kind of interaction as much as we can help it. And it's not to say that we shouldn't to, to get off, I guess, quickly on a, a little side point, it's not to say that we shouldn't protect ourselves from people that are trying to do us harm. Don't misunderstand me. But when it comes down to who we share the gospel with, we shouldn't have a filter based upon how the person has treated us or maybe even the opinion they have of us at the current time in which we might have an opportunity to say something that would lead them to God. I'm sure you've all heard it said at some point or another that, you know, you might be the one link that some given person has to the gospel in their lifetime. You might be that opportunity for them to see the light. But they're not going to see the light if you put it under a bushel. You see the point? And so when we think about it in these terms, it really highlights the importance of these things for us. In the previous chapter, 1 John 2, verse 9, we've been thinking about this idea of being lights, right? Well, notice John says, He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. He who loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness. He walks in darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The nature of love is that of humility and service. I'm sure you've all heard the word agape talked about in different sermons, different Bible studies. Agape is a Greek word. It's what we find in the original writings of the New Testament, and it's the word that is translated love and is the word that is associated with the kind of love that God has for you and I. Well, what is the kind of love that God has for you and I? Well, we talked about this some this morning, but to define the word agape, it is a sincere interest in the welfare of others. Sincerely being interested in what is best for those around us, regardless of who they are. And that goes beyond just 
Well, do they have enough to eat? Do they have some place to stay? Do they have the necessities of this world? We're thinking more prominently about their soul and their spirit. Do we have a sincere interest in the welfare of the souls and spirits that we interact with from day to day? Jesus said in John 15 and verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. It's almost ironic in a sense because we know that Jesus laid down his life for more than just his friends, didn't he? He laid down his life even for those that hated him, those that shouted crucify him. In Galatians 5 and verse 13, Paul said, Brethren, you have been called to liberty or freedom. In, in Christ we are free, free from sin, free from the bondage of the things of this world. But he says, do not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, notice, serve one another. Paul talks to some extent about the nature of agape in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you go back to the Greek text in this particular passage, you'll notice that where it's translated love, that, that Greek is that agape. How do we describe it? Paul says, love suffers long. It is kind. Love does not envy. You know, sometimes we're tempted to be envious when we look around. Maybe we see somebody has the thing that, that we've been wanting for so long. Maybe we think, well, why should they have that? You know, here I am trying to do the right thing and live a good life, and, and I don't have those nice things to enjoy. Sometimes we get jealous and we get envious, right? But love does not do that. Love does not parade itself. If we love people, we don't walk around trying to make sure they know just how amazing we are, as if we're afloat in a parade and something to be admired and, and gawked at. We're not puffed up. You know, I once heard somebody say, when you read through this description, put your name in there where it says love and see how, how it adds up. Love does not behave rudely. doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. Remember what Jesus said about somebody slaps you on the, the right cheek, turn to them, your other also? And that's all about the idea of being provoked, somebody who's just trying to get a rise out of you. Don't be easily provoked. That's not what love is all about. Love thinks no evil. You ever think evil of somebody? Based on something you hear, somebody says, do you hear what they did? And sometimes we're, we're quick to, to believe whatever we hear, right? Without even so much as talking to the person or investigating to see, well, does this person even know what they're talking about? Is, is this really true? We just sometimes are so quick to think evil of others. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. But love rejoices in truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. Hopes all things and endures 
all things. Love, he says, never fails. And finally, as we think about all of these things this evening, and maybe kind of speaking to the larger point of not only what we've talked about tonight, but what we talked about this morning as well. You know, love is so important because it is the summation of God's will. And we had mentioned that to a degree this morning. We talked about how when you take love out of the equation, everything else kind of falls apart. It's like the foundation of a building. When you take it out of there, the rest of the building crumbles. Now, I told you we'd look at Matthew's account of these words that Jesus spoke about the greatest commandments. We find that in Matthew 22. Now, I want us to notice uh, what we find here. Verse 34 says, When the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him and said, What is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the first and great commandment, the second being like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice in verse 40, he said, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You might picture, well, a picture, okay? You hang that up on the wall. You put a nail in the wall, obviously, to to keep it from just falling on the ground. Well, if you have something hanging up here on the wall and you say, well, you know, I need that nail to build whatever it is over here, and so you just pull it out of the wall, what's going to happen to the, the picture? Well, it doesn't have anything to support it anymore, does it? it it's going to fall. And that's what Jesus says. If you take these two commandments out of the equation, then the rest of it falls. Because this is the greatest commandment. It is what all the others are built upon. Paul says much the same thing in Romans 13, verse 8 there. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves has fulfilled the law. Notice that. And he reminds them of, of some of those well-known commandments, part of the Ten Commandments, right, that characterize that law of Moses. He says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, notice all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the, the foundation of all those other things he just mentioned, right? Why don't we murder people? Well, because we care about them, right? We, we love them. Why don't we go steal our neighbor's things? Well, because we love them. It's when we hate them that we do all these terrible things to them. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Remember what James wrote in James 1 verse 27 as he talks about what is pure and undefiled religion before God. Well, he says it's this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, you think about that for a minute. Think about those two things that he mentions there. Do you see any kind of a, a correlation to what we've been studying today? You see how the idea of visiting orphans and widows, those that would be in need, in other words, two classes of people that have a need of help. It's kind of an example of love your neighbor as yourself, isn't it? Why should we keep ourselves unspotted from the world? Well, because we love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. We recognize that He wants us to be holy as He is holy. And so why would we want to do things that would be contrary to His will? Remember what we talked about this morning. If we love Him, we're going to keep His commandments. And so time and time again, even though it might be worded in slightly different ways, we see this same thing is stressed to us over and over and over. We have to be characterized by love, or we cannot be the children of God. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus here speaks to the church in Ephesus. And he says, write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your labor and your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You found them to be liars. And you persevered. You have patience. You have labored for my name's sake. You've not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Well, what does that mean, right? What does it mean to have left our first love? Well, I think as we continue reading, that's kind of explained a little bit better. Because as... Jesus tells them how to correct this problem. What does he say? He says, remember from where you've fallen. Repent and notice, do the first works. Now, what do you suppose the first works would be? First suggest the most important, right? The most foundational works, we might say. Well, what are those foundations? Love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor as yourself. We can do all kinds of good things. Remember we talked about Paul this morning. I can speak with the tongues of men and angels. I can give everything I have to the poor. I can do all these good things. Good because God says they're good. But if I don't have love, it's all useless. It does not profit me anything. There in 1 Corinthians 13, first part of that chapter. And so these people here in Ephesus at this time, as Jesus spoke to them, they were diligent, they were doing good things as he identified there. But apparently, for whatever reason, uh, it had gotten to the point where they were just kind of going through these motions. They were going through these good motions, but had forgotten what it was really all about. What's the point of it all? Why are we doing these things? Well, it's because we love God 
and we love our neighbor as ourselves. They needed to get back to those first works. And maybe tonight, as you think about yourself, maybe you recognize that you're like those in Ephesus. Maybe you need to repent and get back to those first works, those foundational commands, so that you can be building a life that is glorifying to God in the way that He has placed that expectation upon us in Christ. He says, if you don't listen to this warning, I'll come to you quickly. I'll remove your lampstand from its place. The idea of them losing their light. We talked about that tonight. He says, unless you repent. In verse 7 there, at the end of the verse, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We all want to be in that eternal paradise of God. It's been promised to those, as he says here, who overcome temptation, those who stay true to their first love, those who are faithful even unto death, as we read a little bit later in this chapter in verse 10. I hope that the study today has been helpful to you. Some of these things, we might say, are, are foundational things, things we've heard time and time again. But they're necessary that we remind ourselves of these because as we've noted tonight, without them, we cannot expect that any of the other things we might study will have any benefit for us. We must have the right foundation. Perhaps 1 John 3 and verse 10 summarizes everything we've spoken about today in a very succinct way. John says there, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So whose child are, are you tonight? Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? Tonight, if you're here and you have a need of making a correction in your life in a public way, perhaps you need to ask for prayers. Perhaps you're here tonight and you recognize the need to be immersed for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can start a new life in Christ, living by these foundational elements that we've been speaking about living with hope of that paradise that awaits those that are faithful. We would love to assist you in, in any of those things uh, at this time. Our brother has selected a song of invitation. If you turn to that song now, we'll stand together and sing that. And again, if there's anyone here who has a need, please make it known.